This week, we are continuing our talk with Jasmine Berger about all things feminist. If you did not check out our first portion of the conversation, feel free to do so so you can be caught up on what we're talking about. In this conversation, we delve into Jasmine's volunteer work across the globe, how she started the Gender Equality Club in our school, and how teens can have an international impact. But without further ado, let's get into the second portion of this awesome conversation. switch our conversation a little bit um, to, and, and you mentioned this a little bit before about social media activism. So this is something that Joey and I actually talked about. Talk, we, we had to we, cut ourselves off. We cut off ourselves off because we wanted, we wanted the conversation to play out with, with you. Um, what are your thoughts on social media activism, one? And two, do you think it's actually activism? Or is it slacktivism? Yeah. yeah, I was going to talk about slacktivism. Cool. So I think that like slacktivism definitely exists and I feel like you see this most when there's like a horrible tragedy a terrorist attack a gun a shooting and like Facebook has those filters that you can put yeah. over your profile picture saying like I stand with Paris or whatever and I think that like especially as someone who's politically active it definitely it like it shouldn't or maybe it should it kind of bothers me when people who like definitely could not have a conversation about whatever they're posting about post on their Instagram story or their Facebook or whatever. But it, but then at the same time, it's like, oh, well, they know that it's happening, so they have some basis if they're – but it's also yeah. very easily accessible. I don't know. It def, it it bothers me because I'm like, oh, like they don't really know what they're talking about. But at the same time, like if they're willing to do that, then they, they kind of know what's going on. Um, but I think that – like I recently just got a Twitter and – I think that's where all the politics goes down. Like that's where, <laughs> that's where like all like the most woke people go. <laughs> and also, but also like Trump has just like reactivated that platform yeah. where now like all political leaders, if they want to make a statement, they go on Twitter. Basically, Trump is the best thing that happened to Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, real. I don't. I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. Sure, sure. Like because people are just unfiltered. Like especially political leaders, they. They just, without thinking, we all have succumbed to this. Like, if you got a text and you're mad and you instantly respond, or same thing, you, con- you angrily comment on someone's post. Like, political leaders, they see something on Twitter and they get upset and then they post something and then and then it's there in, yeah. in, on the internet forever. And it's, it's stirred up a lot of conversation and a lot of controversy. But I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing because sometimes you don't, like, yes, seeing someone's unfiltered thoughts is is like and having transparency is good but sometimes like with political leaders you kind of want an air of like like discipline in some way yeah and just like having actual thought behind what they're saying before and i feel like social media has a lot it's reached more people but and it's allowed more people to become active but almost in a detrimental way. So if, if not on social media, and if that's not the place where it should take place, where, and this is a big question to ask, but where else do you think a more in-depth conversation could happen? Yeah, I I still think that there are a lot of benefits to social media. And okay. I like I kind of like going on Twitter and just ha- being able to read like 240 characters instead of reading like a whole news article. But at the same time, then you don't really go with that in depth. Yeah. Um, I think that like the best way is still like interviews and like to actually like in a more formal setting. Mm-hmm. 
but it, social media, it definitely has its pro. I yeah. don't know. I, I kind of struggle with this because sometimes I'm like, oh my God, this is so annoying. Like people are just saying shit and they don't really know what, like anything behind it. And people who don't really care are posting and everyone's getting like jumbled and confused. But at the same time, it's, it's reaching more yeah. people. Yeah. I think that AOC has really harnessed the power of social media. Uh, in terms of the way that she interacts with her audience, I mean, she literally live streams she live streams her like creating an ikea bed or something yeah, like. yeah. i watched that i'm guilty I, of watching I, that. I, I like that though i like that it it's makes it more real. transparent it's yes. very real but like sometimes it's too real it's a little too mm, but okay. like do you want that from politicians i don't know yeah i think i th- me personally i think that social media transparency is the future and not in a negative way but it's actually going to be positive in the sense that we're able to connect with our politicians in an extent which we have never been able to do beforehand. Beforehand, we only saw what's it, what's the channel that they C-SPAN. used? C-SPAN. Yeah, so we had C-SPAN. That's the closest that we had uh, in terms to, of interaction to, to our explicit politics. Explicit transparency. Explicit <laughs> transparency. But besides that, they, they were in suits. They were in a formal setting. You didn't really see their full personalities play out. And I think that it's key to understand all the elements of the politician before we you know go to the voting booth so i think that social media is pretty do we, cool do we regard. care about i mean i i think i care about that but i think there's almost a question that we're now asking ourselves is do we care to know about all the person when we're voting for them or do we really care about the policies that they endorse the same thing like leader of the movement uh, yeah, yeah actually maybe that's that's totally true yeah so i guess it does just go back to that but that's a an interesting point of conversation true um okay so when it comes to social media activism, have you seen it materialize in real life? Hmm. I mean, like, I'm guilty. Like, if I go to protest, like, I post a picture of That's it. That's true. Um, but I think that at least people, most people our age, like, it's not like people are, like, go, like writing, like, Facebook status and, like, ex- like saying their opinions. I don't know. I've, so, like, most political, like, most my social media feeds are very political, but it's because I'm following political people. It's not usually like, I don't really, I feel like most people our age don't really yeah. do that. So I haven't really like, I can't really speak to like if people like saying things on social media, if they, if they actually go out and do things. Cause I don't know, most people I follow don't, don't really, aren't that engaged. Um, I'd say that at least like whenever I post something, it's like something that I did. It's not me saying my mm. beliefs. Yeah, that's that's a good way to to change the order. Yeah, of things. That, I think that actually is a good way yeah. to like if you're gonna talk about gun issues, like do something that like you like paraphrase it from a speech that you've given or like mm. something like that. Like instead of just spouting your beliefs, like do something and then spout whatever. I yeah. think I think that the reason why people are so quick to be an activist on social media is this concept with actually with which ariel talked about uh when we were (laughs) when we were recording and it's this idea of political osmosis which i think is key people always want to be affiliated with something they always want to have that herd or group mentality i think that social media has allowed people uh, especially in the modern era to connect with other groups so for instance the feminist movement a lot of people who are posting I affirm fe- feminist ideology on their Instagram with the with the geotag. A lot of times they don't even know like what feminism entails, which like okay, that's cool, that's fair. That's like slacktivism. Yeah, yeah. But on the other side of the spectrum, I think that social media activism allows certain people, which don't usually have the opportunities to, let's say, attend these rallies or attend these town halls, to actually participate in the movement. 
And I think that's key. So I, I'm curious as to see what your takes are on that. I 100% agree with that. And I, I think I first recognized that when, when I started reading a little bit about a little bit more about disability and especially disability like theory from from a political perspective, where especially for people who uh, or not even just in the context of disability, but for, for income, especially like the Women's March being in D.C., I spoke to a lot of women who were like, I cannot afford to go to D.C., but I still want to be active in some way. What do I do? I mean, they weren't actually asking me, what do I do? But they were asking that question. And I think that's something to that we have to realize that social media, one of the best things it can do for you is it allows you to connect with people who are in a similar situation and also lets you open up the world so that you can be like, listen, I, I affirm what you are saying. I totally agree, but I just can't be there in, in person. And it's not because I don't agree with you. It's just because I can't afford it or I'm not physically able to, or I live across the country or anything like that. Um, that's kind of my take on it. Jazz, do you have any separate take? Mm, yeah, I as I said, like oh maybe it's better to like do something than post about it. I realize that like not all, not yeah. everybody can do that, but um, maybe just like being active in your own community and just like starting a club or having a conversation, getting a group of people together, like even just small grassroots things, even if you can't attend like the large march and things like that, um, could be beneficial. I just think that the. It's definitely the positive social media are that more people can be engaged and it's easier to to get to, it like reaches more people. But um, I think it's still like it's so instant that mm -hmm. people aren't really thinking about what they're doing, what they're posting. So I think it's important to like have conversations and like even if you can't attend the march, but just like talk about it and like really solidify what you're saying and what you believe before you post it. I just think there just needs to be more thought before. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, I want to pick your brain a little bit because I think this would be useful for, for other people who want to do something that you've done. When it came to creating basically our gender equality slash feminist club, what was that process like? How would what are your recommendations to people who don't currently have that in their school? What can they do to try and get that on the table with administration, get it as a club? Um, so first thing that I did was what was really like the the turning point and like why I decided that like I wanted to do this was after we watched the Girl Rising screening in our English class. And I just like wanted to get more involved. So I reached out to them. Um, and like was emailing with a representative and they were like, oh yeah, like we'll like, we have like different, different grassroots organizations. Like we definitely love to support you and things like that. So I just kind of, they have on their website, like, um, lesson plans. Mm. So I, so the, and then I found out that Jess also wanted to start a club. So we started talking and basically like we went to the administration with those lesson plans. Um, and just as like a starting point, because like, I mean, it's definitely dependent on the school. But like for us, like we had a, a few conversations with um, our vice principal and just like saying like the goal of the club is to definitely have like a, a message that you want to spread. And then um, like a, a few ideas, like we had to write out like a whole like calendar. We didn't necessarily stick to it, but just like so they knew that like we were actually going to be doing something. It wasn't just like a name of the club and then you yeah. don't do anything um, and just go in having like knowing what you want to do so we we were like we want to discuss issues but we also want to like have an impact so the way that we did that was fundraising so bake sales like jess and i are always looking on um like different organizations to see like if they're 
make like if we can sell one of their things and donate back to them and things like that so I think it just comes down to knowing what you want to do and which organizations you want to partner with Mm -hmm. and like what you want to discuss for those who don't already know, what organizations have you partnered with so so far? I know Girl Rising is yeah. one of them, but um, so then we did. There's another organization called Girl Up. Um, it's through the UN. They do a bunch of things, but the one that we donated to was it. Um, it gave a girl a bike to so that she, like so that she could uh, bike to school because like in some villages, like the school is like five miles away or something. Yep. So um, that was one that we did. Um, the Times Up Foundation. Um, I think we donated to them. We d- we do- did a screening of the RBG documentary. I'm pretty sure that's where we donated to. Um, and then, oh, another one we're doing is um, period end of sentence. Oh, I think there- I, I think I know what, that's a documentary that was created like a pen by a pen student, right? Um, it, it was a documentary. I don't know who created okay, it, but okay. um, it just won an emmy i want to say yeah it was yeah. it was the pen student um, yeah and um that's basically like educating people on and it, it's like in developing nations it um creates it gives women um a job by creating pads because like that's a really big issue um they girls can't go to school because they have their period so, and they don't have any like sanitary products to help with that. So this organization like goes in, it gives them the infrastructure they need to be able to be self-sufficient and create their own pads so that they don't have to like keep on buying them. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, but then also they can go out and sell them for a cheaper price than, than like the more commercialized ones. Um, so I think that's where we're donating to next. That's awesome. Yeah. The fact that, that you had, and also we, cause we, not to the same extent, of course, but to, to help a bit in it that you can still do things if you're our age, right? I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this conversation, that you can still be active, that you can still help organizations, that you can be an international member of, of this world that is our community and help other people even if you don't know them. You I can think, be halfway across the world and still support a movement. Yeah, and I think that's important because I think a lot of people think, well, you know, like I'm just, you know, I'm 15. I can't, I can't really do anything. No, like there's there's a world waiting for you that you can already help. Age restrictions are becoming less and less of a thing considering that we have all the power which we need and even more in our fingertips. You can contact politicians by a simple tweet and they can respond back. Mm. So not only are you, can you be part of a movement, but you can also talk to the leaders of the movement, which is crazy. Yeah. One thing that you, you talked a little bit about um, or at least dropped their name was the Time's Up Foundation. Can we can we talk a little bit about Me Too? I know we've we've talked about it um, in Jane, but what what do you think about all of the claims that say that Me Too is pushing us back from all the progress that the feminist movement has done? Because people are more fearful of working with women. Um, there were claims that people on Wall Street were just like, don't don't even go out with women after hours. Just don't even. It's not worth it. What do you think of all of that? And also, what do you think of the progress that's been made of uh, by the Me Too movement? Yeah, so um, definitely was like disappointing to see that, like, there, like I, I thought there was a lot of progress being happening, and then, and then people are just saying like, no, like now women are just like not being promoted, mm. and but I think that just goes to show 
the fear in our society and the fact that like the Me Too movement is definitely getting at something that's very real and very prevalent. And instead of acknowledging it, people are just stay like men are just um instead of being like wow this is an issue at least the ones on wall street that these reports are coming from yeah um wow this is an issue instead of saying that it's an issue they're just um staying to themselves mm-hmm. um so it just goes to show that it like the realness of it but i think that it definitely has brought a lot of progress people are talking about it it used to be such a taboo now i mean it still is very difficult for many women to come out and tell their stories but it's becoming a little bit more normalized um and i think it's definitely a good movement there are and i think that because people are so afraid that that's what's impeding it but going back to what we said before you know diversity of demographics i think that you you get rid of this problem by promoting more women in higher up positions. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, obviously, but just being able so that there's a lot of women in powerful positions to be like, you can't not go out to dinner with a woman because you don't think you're going to be able to handle yourself. Like you need to, that's how you're supposed to live. Yeah. If women are going to exist regardless of whether or not you can contain yourself, you might as well. And you know, men will say, well, Oh, like I'm not doing anything. I'm just afraid that she's going to accuse me of something. And the amount, like, in any of these big stories, the, like none of the accusations have t- proven to be false. I, m- most of them haven't even like gone to court or anything. But like for the most part, I would say that like people, like there there hasn't been anything where people have been actually like prosecuted in in this recently. Yeah, and it's only like. I don't even remember the statistic. It's like a very low percentage of people who are like accuse someone of rape. And then, and then the, f- I think it's like 3%, I want to say. Mm-hmm. I might have made that up. But it's like, a we'll, very we'll look low, it up and try and look okay. it too. It's a very low percentage of women who will actually falsely accuse someone of rape. But then, even if they accuse, not like a very minimal percent of, of rape accusations will even go to court. Yeah. So, like, okay, maybe someone would falsely accuse you, which, rarely happens but if it did there's like even less likely of a chance for it to go to court so i don't it's just like i it really bothers me that like men the fact that men see it as a problem and that they don't want to engage just kind of proves the point that like you're you're not doing this because you think you're not going to be able to contain yourself i think there's a fear of weaponization um of of the me too movement and i think this is especially true in the context of when when the Kavanaugh hearing was occurring, which I think was the worst time to have this conversation about sexual assault because it wasn't a trial setting. It was just like accusations and then a Senate trying to delegate as to whether or not they were going to put someone on the Supreme Court. Like It was just not the best time. Um, Although I'm glad the conversation was started there. But I think people have become fearful of the fact that People's careers can be destroyed by simply saying that something has happened. And while, yes, those who genuinely have sexually assaulted people and have raped people, that should that should be the consequence. Like, your career should die there, right? You are literally violating every sort of basic and fundamental principle of being a human. But the fear, I think, comes from the fact that a, it's almost an asymmetrical ac- accusation system where there are men who have had instances of, of being sexually assaulted or raped. 
my my best example would probably be Terry Crews, who was mm-hmm. very vocal on this subject and someone that that I personally look look up to on the, on the topic of of masculinity. And and he even wrote a book on it. I think it was in 2014 that he published all about masculinity before any of this stuff was really like mainstream and, and when it was still a bit more taboo to talk about things like toxic masculinity and what it means to be a man. Um, for me, I'm very proud of what has happened where people are now able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I'm still afraid that someone could accuse me and, and what I've done and everything's lost. When, when I, at least... I don't think I've done anything to make people feel uncomfortable in that way, but I don't know from the other side, like um, Aziz Ansari. That example to me was very frightening because it's like from one perspective, he thought it was consensual. From the other perspective, from the woman's perspective, she was like, I, I never wanted this to begin with and you pushed yourself on me. That's hard. Yeah. And, and one, thing's, one thing that my, my mom especially said, especially since we're going to college, when... You are in any of relationship, any relationship. There has to be very, very loud, or not loud, but there has to be consent. But it has to be enthusiastic. Audible. Enthusiastic. That's the word. And yeah. explicit. That can remove a lot of the issue. But you're not recording your whole life. Mm-hmm. Th- that's just my. Fear. We're just gonna walk know. around with GoPros. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. Just to add on to what Asher was saying, I think that there's a lack of reciprocity in terms of female to male uh, sexual assault cases versus male to female, right? Um, so for male to female, oftentimes you would think that if a woman was raped by a man, uh, the consequences would be a lot worse. A lot of times, for instance, like Harvey Weinstein, he's had multiple allegations. They've been proven to be true. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, tr- he's being tried of, in court. Yeah, too. he's being tried in court. Whereas vice versa for Terry Crews, right? I don't see much of the penalties going towards the woman. At least I, I don't think it was a woman. I think it was um, his manager who okay. who grabbed him by his genitals. Okay, so but whatever. It's still but proves, still but still the still fact the fact point. that and, and especially in the case of like um, homosexual couples, yeah, and gay couples where you would think man to man or even woman to woman, you're like, nah, it doesn't happen. But for those it communities, happen. it's it's actually disproportionately the instances of sexual assault occur in those communities in the lgbtq community Mm -hmm. and people just write it off they're like there's no way this could happen i mean i could speak from personal experience i've had multiple instances where girls i don't even want to call them women girls have inappropriately done things i'm not going to get into specifics yeah which were not consensual yeah and there was an instance last year where this had happened 10 times something like that to me and my friend um we went to authorities quote-unquote about it i'm not gonna say where the where all this basically took place but there was zero penalties like mm. zero penalties none against the girl who had pursued the action and that infuriated me to know that sure the me too movement is huge right now but the reciprocity towards males in certain situations is really iffy so i think it it comes along with the idea that that men are put on a like a high pedestal mm-hmm. that they're strong like all these characteristics that are not ma- like masculine right like a woman can be strong a woman should be put high on a pedestal there's nothing implicit or intrinsic to a man that makes them strong whatsoever but there's almost a stereotype and this is where our world is very gendered and it, and it can also impact men as well as well as women where 
guys can be sexually assaulted just like women can. But the fact that we, especially with Terry Crews, a lot of people were like, there's no way this happened to you. And you're like, he's such a macho dude. Yeah. Like he is the definition of what I guess older guys would consider like a very masculine person. He's super jacked, very strong, funny actor, seems successful. And he talks about this story and, and almost like people were like, wow, you're such like a wuss and you're so gentle and you're so feminine for saying it's literally one thing he talked about. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he gets painted as something that there's no reason why it should be associated with just women. Um, and I think this has also come into play with there's like a, a small little movement of like boys can cry too, or like mm-hmm. boys should be more in touch with their emotions. And Bad boys cry. Yeah. yeah. And where some guys push back and they're like, nah, like you're, like you're just not supposed to do that like you're not a dude if you do that um but really in in my mind you are truly a man or or probably a gentleman is the better better word that i would put for it if you recognize your emotions and you're able to talk about it and you're able to talk about your experiences and you're not just some like macho dude who tries to like flaunt his shit when you're not hot stuff if you can recognize who you are and that none of these stereotypes matter that's what makes you a real man or that's what makes you a real woman. To be like, I don't give to what the world thinks about me. I'm going to just do me. And I hope that's enough for myself and for the people around me. That's my take. Um, yeah, I think that we kind of touched upon the topic of t- toxic masculinity. Um, but I think that it who it, it mainly hurts is men. Mm. Because it's saying that you have to be macho, you can't show your emotions, you can't cry, you you can't be sexually assaulted, all of these things. It's And that's where feminism, I think, encompasses, encompasses gender equality because it's like that's that idea of toxic masculinity is a product of the feminist movement. And it's not saying that masculinity is bad. It's My dad likes to say toxic aspects of masculinity. He gets very offended mm. when I say it because he's like, masculinity isn't toxic. It's just there's certain aspects of it sure. that that cage. It's not even it like can hurt women, but it's caging men into this macho stereotype. Mm. And I think that that's that's very prevalent in the Me Too movement where men's cases are not heard as much. And and that's where... So I think that it's important to recognize that toxic masculinity is is caging men in mm. and and that, that needs to be more talked about in the Me Too movement. Um, yeah. Last thing I want us to touch on is to go back to something that we you originally started with, which was some of your work in activism across the world. Can we, I, you said, you gave three different experiences, one of which I actually didn't even know about. I only knew about two of them. Um, but the one, India, Cambodia, and then also working on native reservations. Could you talk a little bit about how you got involved in, in maybe each one, if, if you want to do that, or maybe we'll ask questions during it, but then also what you've learned kind of from from doing it Mm. i just want to preface it by saying that because we were talking about how like age restrictions aren't a aren't a thing like you can go out into the world i do want to acknowledge my privilege and saying that like it's very you need to have the means to be able to travel and i come from like a like the reason that i'm worldly per se is because like um i come from mixed background like i have family in india and israel and in europe and things like that so like I've been very privileged to go on these, like be able to do service in other countries. But um, yeah, and there are there are ways to still contribute, like from your own hometown, if, if you don't have the means. I cool. just want to say that. But um, yeah, so 
I, like I said, I have family in India, and my grandfather had a classmate who started um, this school called Disha. Um, it's in the closest town it's near is New Delhi, but it's like an eight-hour bus ride. Um, it's in the middle of nowhere in this rural village. Um, and I just – we I met her before, and like in like third grade she told me about this, and I was like, I really want to – I want to see it. Like I want to um, work there. And and then by the time I was in high school, I was like, okay, like I actually want to do it. Like I've been hearing about this for a few years. Like I want to go do it. So – I convinced my grandparents to come with me and they um so I I stayed at the school like with the headmistress um for about a month and did a lot of different it's a really impressive school they it's for like the untouchable caste so there's a caste Mm. system in India and like the lowest it's not like technically it's not prevalent but in rural life it very much is so it's um mainly focusing on untouchable the untouchable cast not really cast whatever and then um handicapped children like the last victims of polio like still um and still kind of in india and the school provides free surgery for them to try to help them walk again um there is a an there is a school for deaf children that taught them um speech therapy and things like that and then the whole like women aspect like trying to just in the surrounding village trying to get um girls to go to school to at least extend the marriage age so like they'll be they'll have graduated high school when they get married instead of like when they're 14 Mm. um so it was a lot of different things it was definitely a lot of culture shock there were so many things going on at that school and i they never really had a volunteer before because it was it was literally in the middle of nowhere, um, so I just kind of had to, and I also didn't speak the language because it's an interesting dialect. So, yeah, like there was definitely a language barrier. There's a lot of different things, but I had my grandpa with me, and he spoke the language, so he was kind of my translator. And it was really just a lot of like, ta- like there was I taught some English. Um, I um, did a lot of like art projects with um, some of the younger children and um, and with the deaf children. Um, I helped like revamp their website to try to get. More. I did a lot of like on the foundation mm. like side, getting a lot of money um, from from donors and things like that, um, and just being able to. It was more of a like I felt very privileged to have gone there and being able to see that was just very eye opening. Um, and then like continuing efforts, like I still um, fundraise for them and things like that. That's awesome. Yeah, Joe, you have any questions about that? That's dope. (laughs) Um, So after your experience in India, you then went to Cambodia the next summer, right? Yes. Could you talk a little about that? Yeah, that was with um, a group called Vision Service Adventures. I wonder if they'll get a royalty. (laughs) Um, And I found that, so I knew that, like, I loved my summer in India and I wanted to uh, continue doing volunteer work. So I was just, like, doing a lot. There's a lot of different companies, but I just really liked them because they were very, like, small-knit um, like I t- called up on the phone and like the director answered and I was just wow. asking her. So it was a very like tight knit group. And, um, yeah, I chose Cambodia. I don't, I don't really know why I just like looked at the program and it looked the most exciting. And, um, yeah, I went, I didn't know anyone. Um, there were like, like 15 participants, I want to say. And, um, we, stayed in like a rural village it was, it was pretty similar we used to, we worked at a school we taught english we built a bathroom um that goes back to it like again focus on the women because like 
if they can't go to the bathroom, especially like when they have their periods and things like that, it impedes them from going to school. Um, so that's another reason why I wanted to fundraise for that um, organization because I saw it play out firsthand. Um, and then also, like I said before, we worked with um, sex traffic girls. It's a real issue in Cambodia. Like 40% of the girls um, will are sex trafficked, Whoa. which is crazy. Uh, they, but Cambodia is like doing a really like trying to solve that. They have the most like NGOs per capita in any in any country. So um, they're really doing a lot to try to um, like get lift their country out of poverty. Um, so, yeah, so we, we mainly stayed at the school, um, but same thing, like, we, we were really there to learn from them, and all the organizations that we worked with are, like, it's, like, you want to try to get rid of that, like, white savior aspect. Yeah. I was, I was, I was actually gonna just going to ask about that. Yeah, because I know that a lot of people are opposed to Americans going into foreign countries and pursuing this quote-unquote white man's burden, yeah. so to say, and I'm just curious to see, like, what your interpretation of an American going to a foreign country. Also, and also how you broke that model. Yeah. Because especially when you're speaking, and I hope people recognize this, you were not the type of person to just go there to take a picture to touch like an orphan and leave. You, mean, were you the, spent you were, like an extensive month. But, but not even that. When you came back, you're still giving to them. Can you talk a little bit about, about what your thought is on all that and how you broke it? Um, I think that the most important is partnering with local NGOs and and part and organizations because they like you don't want to come in and I think a lot of people on my trip struggle with this like they see some of the customs especially like in India and Cambodia a lot of the culture is rooted in sexism and like patriarchy and things like that and a lot of people came in they're like well we need to educate them we have to teach them that like this isn't okay and things like that but you just have to it's very like go with the flow mentality like sure. you have to do whatever like you're there to help so if this organization needs you to do this thing and that's what you do and you don't ask questions because it's and maybe you can have a conversation and just like kind of pick their brain and see like and see like why they're doing this but I think the most important is you don't come in with a mission plan you come in just there you recognize that like it's a privilege for you to be able to like see this aspect and and being and just like learning about their culture and then the way that you give back to to that is is by helping them so mm -hmm. I think that it's just like um, like grassroots organizations, I think are key in because you're not. It's all coming from within, mm -hmm. and they know how to ta to tackle certain aspects of their culture that they don't agree with the best because they understand it, and you don't. And you just have to recognize that like you don't know everything. Like Western culture is not superior, and yeah. I guess I I could see how that could be a huge learning lesson, but it, like a very personal one too. Because I know we we talk about that in especially history classes like we'll talk about how the history of colonialism and the history of of western superiority or at least our imposition of our superiority but to get that first-hand experience to travel across the world like that is is something very unique that i don't think a lot of people get but i'm, I'm also glad that you recognized your privilege in that because i can see where there could be pushback right like i could see where where someone of a low income's like yeah well of course someone with you know ton of money can go off and save some children what am i going to do but that i'm really i'm really glad that you you talked a little bit about um and i'm glad that you've also figured out ways to do it at home which is something that i personally find to be one of the most important parts of continuing it not just doing it for one small period of time 
Um, and then the last experience you had was this summer, right? And, yes. and working on a native reservation. Yeah. Um, so I worked on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in Montana, um, also with Visions. And that was really crazy experience because you're in America, but it's just like such a different culture because they're, they're it was more of like a learning experience all of these were but like this was very culturally intense um where we were going to religious ceremonies and like sweat lodges and sun dances and like all of these things that like you read about in textbooks but like they're still doing that yeah um and what i did there was there's a large obesity problem on the reserve on reservation so there were all these like food trucks stationed so they get free meals in school but it was during the summer so um they a lot of people like were they have trouble like there's also poverty so like they don't have enough money for food so there's all these food trucks stationed around the reservation with healthy options but not that many people knew about it so like Hmm. our job was to like we like went up, knocked on doors, like basically canvassing, telling people that this is a resource that they can use for um, healthy food options. And then also like sort of educating, but like, again, all coming from this organization who like wanted us to educate people about um, like the benefits of healthy eating and the issues that obesity brings and things like that. So that was, we did a lot of little projects, but that was our main one. Um, but the the highlights of that trip were definitely the like all of the the religious ceremonies that I was able to observe because visions have been working with this organization for uh, with the uh, reservation for thirty years, so there's definitely a level of trust. And like we were invited to a lot of amazing ceremonies that um, like a lot of outsiders wouldn't have been. That's awesome. I'm yeah. wondering, and this is this is a big question that I, I think we should be having more of a conversation about in our country. What so you you noticed firsthand how it literally looks like a third world country? Um, what type of steps do you think we should be making to resolve those issues? Yeah, Joe, you you seem like you have something. Uh, I don't know why when you said in our country, yet it still feels like a third world country. It just reminded me of Hawaii. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It was my dad's dream vacation, and we were like, "All right, we have like a week and a half off. Let's do it." Um, so we go to Hawaii and. It is the complete opposite of what you think it would be. You think that it's like a paradise. Sure, the nature is beautiful and it's really exotic there and the mountains are crazy. But the poverty there is insane. The obesity rates there are tremendous. And unfortunately... They have a lot of indigenous people there as yeah, well. Yeah, and they've quite obviously done been done been blah, 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 <laughs> done wrong too. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's really unfortunate to think that one of America's most beautiful places, arguably out there, is treated like a second world country, although we live in a first world. Mm-hmm. Important note. But Jasmine, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think we could do on, on reservations? It's such a hard issue. I yeah. mean, what I found was that a lot of the people, one interesting thing was that most of the people there that had served in the military, and hmm. because... And I thought that was so interesting because I was like, it's the military that like took over these indigenous people. Like, how, like why would you want to fight for a country that has been so, has wronged you so many times? And, and one of the elders told, they said, you know, we just recognize that like, we're very grateful. Like we recognize that there's a lot of issues and that we're not always treated fairly, but we're still grateful that we have a place in 
in this country where we can still practice our religion and also the Blackfeet people are warrior people. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they give back by fighting for, for the country that, that is allowing them to still exist, which I thought was so interesting. And I think that's like what I struggled with the most because I was like, they're literally just like put in these reservations. They can leave, but like then they lose their culture. Mm. So just this weird dichotomy where like they're very obviously proud to be Blackfeet. They want to preserve their culture. And the only way they can do that is by staying on the reservation. But you also want to like integrate like you from the outside. I'm like, well, don't you want to be integrated into society? And like there are going to be so many more opportunities like outside the reservation. But they want to keep their culture alive. So it's just like a very weird because some people like can't leave. Some people don't want to leave. So... I, yeah, I, I don't really have an answer for that I because I was struggling when I was there. I was just like, I don't know if – because you hear about it in, like, history class and you're like, reservations seem awful. You're, pu- you're like, quarantining, quarantining these people in, in, like, this one area. But some – but, like, there's also positives to it. So, sure, yeah. sure. That's, that's really cool. And I, I'm glad you talked about that because yeah. that's something that I had no idea that they – that that many people go into the military. I think there's a side thing where we don't treat our veterans kind enough. Yeah. That's um, a whole other kind. But especially like... we don't treat our indigenous populations kind enough. We don't... It, I mean, they were literally one of the last groups to get voting rights, I'm pretty sure, right? Um, they were one of the last groups to, to formally be given citizen status as well. Um, I might be wrong about the voting rights thing. Don't Don't take me as a fact on that one. I just think I remembered it. But... Um, last kind of side note, what do you think you, you want to do in, in the future? Is this something you want full time to be, to be an activist and to be running your own NGO? Do you see other avenues that might be more effective for you to continue something like this? Do you want to throw this all away and do something else? I'm, I'm just curious what you yeah, want to do. Um, I'm not exactly sure yet. Cause yeah, I have a, diff- a lot of different passions that I want to pursue. Um, I want to study public policy in college, political science, something like that. And then, I, yeah, I don't really, like, I want to travel and, like, help internationally, but I also am very interested in, like, systematic issues and, like, maybe, like, running for office one day. Okay, so, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Jasmine I'm very, 2020. <laughs> I'm, I have, I'm very, I'm hoping to find more direct path clear path in college like right now like in my mind maybe a law degree not necessarily become a lawyer just you could do a lot with that mm. in in the fields that I'm interested in um but definitely like I will continue being an activist staying politically engaged like I d- want to continue doing service work and all of that I just don't know exactly what career that'll turn into that's totally right I'm in the same place and I think Joey is too but that was an amazing conversation. Thank now you. we're going to give you your opportunity to plug all your socials so people can follow you as you become Jasmine, the president. <laughs> um, my Instagram is Jasmine Berger. My Snapchat is Jasmine Berger. <laughs> and my Facebook is Jasmine Sierra. Oh, damn. Ooh. Mix them up. That was, that's your middle name, I'm assuming? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> all right. Oh, and my Twitter Ooh. is Jasmine Berger 14. Oh, you had to add the 14. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I actually... Yeah, I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter. I have ten followers, but um, I I I, I, I retweet and comment on a lot. Proud of things, ten so, followers. Yeah. <laughs> Stay loyal. Anyways, thank y'all for listening into this episode. We really loved it, and as always, 
you know where to find us. Just look in the description. We have our Instagram, our, all of our social medias down there, Facebook. Feel free to give us a follow and send us any messages to our email or to, uh, to our anchor in terms of voice memos. If you have any input on the conversation which we had, we really love engaging with you guys. And as always, this is the Debate Without Debate podcast. Peace. 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 Yeah, <laughs> hey, you know. Yeah. <laughs>